FX Medicine is not just a podcast. We also have free articles, infographics, and a monthly email newsletter, all designed to build your clinical expertise. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for our newsletter and get your latest free content. And welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we record today. I would also like to pay my respects to Elders past and present. With us today is Jane Hutchins, a naturopath, nutritionist, herbalist, registered nurse and researcher. She has a Master's of Science in Medicine in Reproductive Health Science and Human Genetics from the University of Sydney and is nearing completion of her PhD at the University of Technology, Sydney on the experiences of women who have cardiac disease in pregnancy and the first year postpartum. Jane has worked for decades in women's health and is passionate about keeping healthcare accessible, doable and effective. Welcome to FX Medicine, Jane. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I was a little bit unnerved by the decades in health, though. (laughs) Well, you and me, I'll say the same. So, you know, we can do it together. Good. (laughs) We probably have 40 years of experience between us, so there you go. At least. (laughs) Now, the the prevalence of cardiac disease in pregnancy is on the increase and ranges from 1% to 4% of total pregnancies, and that equates to between 3,000 to 12,500 Australian women, with one in four of these women requiring hospitalisation. And actually, cardiovascular disease is the most common cause of pregnancy-related mortality. One paper I read found that 10.3% of women experience hypertension in pregnancy. Now, the long-term consequences of cardiac disease in pregnancy can lead to chronic illness. A 2021 paper stated that women with hypertension in pregnancy have a two- to three-fold increased risk of cardiovascular disease later in life. Today, we're going to cover a lot of information about cardiac disease in pregnancy. And as usual, we will give you practical information on what we as clinicians can do to help these patients. But first of all, Jane, can you outline the types of cardiac disease in pregnancy? And, you know, many of us are you know, very familiar actually with preeclampsia, but there's much more to this than just that. Absolutely. And in fact, the figure that you quoted of 1% to 4% of pregnancies being complicated by cardiac disease, that doesn't even include hypertension and preeclampsia. Mm. So it's additive. So the non-hypertensive conditions are usually categorised into three groups, so congenital, acquired or genetic. Mm-hmm. So the congenital ones are usually surgically repaired in early infancy, so the tetralogy of fallow, or it might be something milder, so of valvular prolapse or something. Mm. The acquired ones could be your garden variety heart attack, so an atherosclerotic heart attack, usually in an older mother. Okay. It could be idiopathic cardiomyopathy, so we don't know why, she's just got it. Mm. Some rhythm disorders 
okay. are acquired. And then there's genetics. So again, a lot of the rhythm disorders are genetic, so long QT syndrome, and there are some genetic forms of cardiomyopathy as well, so hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Mm-hmm. And for the women may be diagnosed at birth, some women are diagnosed in adulthood, some in pregnancy, and some may not be diagnosed until 11 months postpartum. Right. So it's a really diverse mix of conditions as well as timing of presentation. So it makes it a, a really difficult thing to talk about as a cohesive whole. Yeah. But an interesting one. And even so when I said garden variety heart attack, I mean your normal plaque kind of atherosclerotic condition. Mm. But for pregnant women and postpartum women, they're more likely to have a thing called a SCAD or a pregnancy associated SCAD, which is a spontaneous coronary artery dissection. Mm-hmm. And of SCADs in all populations, about 85 to 90% are in women anyway. Okay. And those women have heart attacks at like 50 instead of 75. Mm. And the presentation in pregnancy and postpartum is worse than if you had it at other times. So there's, there's kind of a layering of issues, yeah. but lots of different conditions that can appear. Yeah. And I think that umbrella term of cardiac disease in pregnancy is so huge. You know, you've got the non-hypertensive, the congenital, acquired or genetic, and then you've got the hypertensive such as preeclampsia. It's so broad, isn't it? It is. And it kind of makes it obvious then when you think, oh, well, no wonder it's the most common non-obstetric issue in pregnancy yeah, (laughs) because there are so many different things that can happen. And sometimes women will have an underlying cardiac disease, but they don't know. It's just revealed in pregnancy because of the added cardiac pressure, Mm. the increased cardiac load and output. Otherwise, they may have gone through life without necessarily realising. Yeah. And and look, I mean, I'm curious, and I know this is guesswork, but obviously the (laughs) reported numbers are a little underplayed. What is your guess on what the actuals are? You know, (laughs) I have a very big line in my thesis, which I have bolded and italicised, and it's along the lines of, why do we not know this? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. So if 1% to 4% is a conservative measure or estimate of cardiac disease in pregnancy, and that doesn't even include all of the postpartum presentations, Yeah. That's a lot of women. And do we care that little that we haven't even thought to count them Mm. and work out what they have and then what they need? So, yes, it's really underestimated. And some of the reasons are because coding issues. So when you're looking at prevalence of disease, Mm -hmm. one of the big techniques to do that is to go through hospital records and see how many people came in or on discharge, their medical record code was a Q1093 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And if the overworked under-resourced intern who's sitting there at 11 o'clock at night doing all that coding gets it wrong, and why wouldn't they, then it completely screws your data. Then you have things like women in general and possibly more so in pregnancy and postpartum, their cardiac disease is under-recognised, under-diagnosed. So if you're not even given a diagnosis, you'll never appear in the statistics. Mm. And so many cardiac symptoms are kind of similar to pregnancy symptoms. So it's, mm. Mm. to some degree, it's understandable. Yeah. Then, then you have things like some conditions were only defined in the last 15 years. So they're not going to be in older data. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, those SCADs where the coronary artery dissects, you need to have a really good imaging team and equipment to be able to read the angiogram properly. Okay. So if you're in an area where you don't have fancy equipment and the 
cardiologist doesn't have the extra expertise in that, it just may not be diagnosed. Yeah, so Um, the fact is that we are most likely seeing more women in our clinical practice with potential cardiac disease than we realise. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, so this is why I really want to dive into this because I feel like it hasn't had enough exposure, it hasn't had enough awareness, and we need to keep our eye out for these women sitting across the table from us. So I really want to go through today, you know, so many things, but potentially also some white flags that we as clinicians can be keeping our eye out for. I mean, what is the diagnostic criteria for cardiac disease in pregnancy? I mean, is there actually a diagnostic criteria? No, there's no one test Mm. or one set of tests that you can do because each condition is so different. Mm, okay. So for instance, peripartum cardiomyopathy, or someone might present with heart failure and it'll take you a little while to work out whether it's a genetic form, an idiopathic form that, no, we don't know, or if it's pregnancy related and the criteria sometimes is genetic material. So you've got mm. to wait and go through that process. But at the start, you just know that their ejection fraction is less than 35%. Then yeah. you have to tease out the rest. Then they're testing for rhythm disorders. You know, if she's having a dysrhythmia when you've got leads on her, that's really easy. But if she has presented with seizure activity a couple of times in the last 10 years, usually she'll get investigated for epilepsy. Mm -hmm. So there is no one thing, but the really critical thing is to listen. (laughs) I know that sounds a bit trite, Mm. but actually really listen. And we need to also, I think, encourage women to trust themselves and if they think something is not quite right or something has changed, it's a bit vague, they don't have a word to describe it, mm. to trust that and pursue it because clinicians dismiss women yeah, and women dismiss women. Mm. So we need this kind of two-pronged approach. But no, there's no one discrete assessment that we can do Mm. for all of those different conditions. Yeah. And I mean, I guess if you look at traditional cardiovascular disease research, premenopausal women are pretty underrepresented as well. Totally, totally. And when they are, you'll find really fabulous things like if you get a 40-year-old man and a 40-year-old woman Mm. who goes into emergency department with exactly the same symptoms, he's more likely to get an angiogram than she is. Mm. And then even if they both have angiograms and they're both diagnosed with, say, a mild heart attack, he's more likely to go to intensive care or coronary care and she's more likely to be discharged. Right. And she's more likely to die. Yeah, it's shocking, isn't it? It's just, it's breathtaking. Mm. Every now and then I look at it again and I just think, really? Yeah. (laughs) So, yes, it's really under-recognised. But I would say in Australia there's a really strong and growing female cardiologist group (laughs) and a a bit of a movement to really improve cardiac outcomes for women. And that includes a subset who happen to be pregnant or postpartum. But there are also some male cardiologists who are really invested in this as well. So whilst it's currently not great, there's some really good work happening, which gives me some hope. So definitely women are underrepresented through the spectrum until death in mm. research. Yeah. And talking about raising awareness, you know, you published a paper earlier this year. Massive congratulations. It's such a feat for any <laughs> naturopath. And, and the aim is correcting this lack of visibility for women and cardiovascular disease in pregnancy. It's a complex and very stressful experience for women. So identifying key interventions is critical. So can you tell us a little about your findings? 
So that paper was in particular looking at the mental health outcomes and the sense of isolation that women experienced. Mm. So the first research study that I did was interviewing women. Just It was open slather. There is less than a dozen papers I could find internationally on women's experiences. Okay. When you consider how many millions every year are affected, again, how come? Why don't we care? Mm. So it was really like, so hi, tell me what happened. And people told this story in however they liked, in whatever form, and they were very different. Some were diagnosed at two days old with severe congenital heart disease. Someone had a heart attack. Someone had a seizure and, you know, really different. But throughout all of them, mental health was a key feature. Okay. So then I kind of investigated that further. And in, in a future study, I looked at the DAS and some mm. cardiac mental health tools. Yeah. And it really just quantified what they were telling in their stories. So we know already in, in research on men <laughs> that if you have a cardiac event, there's a strong increase in depression and poorer mental health outcomes after that. Yeah. So it's, yes. it's kind of hopefully routine. If you have a heart attack, they say, okay, now go have some rehab and have some counselling because you're going to feel rotten and that's normal and we'll support you through it. So we already know that happens. But some conditions have worse mental health outcomes. So if you have a cardiac arrest, Mm. that's kind of ramping it up a bit. If you have a SCAD, so that dissection instead of a normal heart attack, Mm. that has a much higher rate of having severe anxiety, depression and PTSD. If you have a a defibrillator, so an implantable cardioversion device, and if you're 20 just hanging out with your friends and that keeps zapping you, Mm. highly associated with poor mental health outcomes and poor sexual health outcomes. So we've got normal cardiac and mental health, then we've got these diseases are worse, and then add to that that it's happening when you're pregnant or postpartum mm. and you're already at risk and vulnerable for poor mental health outcomes. So it's kind of compounding that. Then think about her pre-existing vulnerabilities. Did she have an underlying general anxiety disorder already or had she had trauma in the past? Mm. So again, we're layering and layering. And then other vulnerabilities, so something like 25% of women in domestic violence situations, the first time they're physically assaulted is during their first pregnancy. Mm. You know, they're not rocking up to their appointments saying, you know, how big's my baby, by the way, my husband punched me. Mm. So there's lots of silence and isolation with things like that. Indigenous women, higher risk of poor mental health outcomes, women born overseas. Mm. So there's a whole lot of that layering. And then there's the, oh, my God, am I going to live long enough to raise my child? Yeah, it's it's a big question and you couldn't help but be faced with those thoughts of mortality. Absolutely. Like it's huge. And, you know, I'm 30 and now my partner has to care for me and I'm not okay about that. Mm. And I can't work anymore or I'm really compromised in what I can do. And then just the cherry on the top is that the majority of these women were offered absolutely zero mental health support. Wow. Okay. That's that's interesting, but yeah, very significant here. Yeah. And oh, and then the other really big one is probably close to half, depending on the condition, but close Mm. to half of women who do have some sort of cardiac event or exacerbation in pregnancy and postpartum, it's in their first pregnancy or their Mm. first pregnancy to term or to birth. So they may have had previous miscarriage or pregnancy or stillbirths. Yeah. And then they're told it's too high risk 
we don't think you should ever have another pregnancy. Okay. Yeah, so so it's sorry to bring down your morning. No, like, it's, it's full on. Yeah, and, and I, the multifactorial and the layers mm. and the complexity of this leads to there's such a gap here for us to cover. And, and you know, like a lack of clear diagnostic criteria means that early preventative strategies may not be implemented either. So how can that gap be improved? Yeah, absolutely. Like I, just thinking of a couple of women I interviewed. So mm. one worked full-time in a reasonably physically active job and played soccer three times a week and yeah. had a heart attack. So there was nothing to prevent that. Yeah. The genetic things, you can't do anything to prevent that. And well, the majority of the women internationally in the studies have none of those traditional cardiometabolic risk factors. Okay. They don't smoke, they don't drink, their diet's great, they're physically active, they're not even that stressed necessarily. You know, they don't have a lot of those. Some women will have connective tissue risk factors, so fibromuscular dysplasia, which I always mess up. Um, (laughs) So that increases your risk of having arterial dissections, for instance. Mm -hmm. And with the genetic one is interesting. And that is that thing around, well, what do you know about your family history? I'm sure you've had the experience. You say, so tell me about your mum. Oh, she's fine. Mm. Okay. Has she ever been to hospital? Oh, yeah. I don't know what for. Okay. Go home and ask her. Yes. (laughs) Um, So as, as all of us, you know, I've written my family history down for my siblings when they had to go to hospital and they just ring and say, so tell me, what was wrong with mum that time? Yeah. Um, so as we get better at communicating that, and that's not necessarily something we're good at because it'd be private and I am, and we don't necessarily want to tell all our stuff to people, but it's really important mm. for cardiovascular risk factors and cardiac risk factors. So, you know, one of the women I spoke with had a really – Unfortunately, common experience in trying to talk to family about genetic conditions, and this certainly came up a lot when I did the master's in reproductive health, is that other people in the family don't necessarily want to know. Mm. And that's distressing, particularly if it's something that can make you drop dead. And hers was, it was long QT syndrome, and, Mm -hmm. and you know you have it when you don't wake up often. And people in her family, it was like, oh, you know, Uncle Bob, we didn't expect him to die 40, but he was walking to the shop and dropped dead. Mm. And it became apparent when you look through history, it's like, oh, all these unexplained deaths all over the place. But people can treat the person who's communicating that information as if they're bringing the black death into the family. Mm. And, you know, it's not contagious, it's genetic. (laughs) But from a clinician point of view, we can start asking more questions. We can say, so how old was your mum when she had babies? Oh, she's had a heart attack or she's taking medication. Do you know what Mm. for? Oh, okay. So she got hypertensive disorder at 40. That seems a bit young. Mm. So unpicking some of that. And don't forget dads um, (laughs) and other family members. But obviously the female line can sometimes give us a little bit more information about it. Yes. And then you just, just general cardiometabolic risk. So the prevalence is increasing because, one, we know more, so we're diagnosing more, mm. because people who had congenital heart disease are now treated and cured, basically, yeah. and getting to be old enough to have children. So 20 years ago, they weren't. So now we've got this whole new bunch of information. Mm-hmm. And also people with really severe congenital heart disease are surviving and having children. Mm. And 
then there's the ones that we're kind of more familiar with. They're the women who are 40 and a little bit overweight who finally say, yep, I found someone or I found some sperm. I want to have a baby. And, yeah, I've got type 2 diabetes, but I think I'm on top of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they're the, they're the kind of classic cardiometabolic risk. She's got a touch of hypertension. She doesn't exercise. She's pretty stressed. She's working two jobs to save money to buy the sperm to have the baby. Yes. You know, so... Yeah. They're the kind of garden variety things that we just know without even thinking about. Uh, okay, we need to get your blood sugar under control, your inflammation, your blood pressure, mm. your, all of that stuff. Yeah. And and look, you're doing research for this episode. The American Heart Association published a 2020 statement called Cardiovascular Considerations for Caring for Pregnant Patients. But when I read through it, it seemed to focus on women who already had a known cardiovascular issue. And it was great. You know, they focused on pre-pregnancy counselling and developing that care team. But there was really no mention. I mean, women that don't have pre-existing conditions, they really do fall between the gaps at every level. Absolutely. And so let's say she's diagnosed with some type of cardiomyopathy in Mm. third trimester. The cardiologist may not necessarily be be baby aware. (laughs) Um, And the obstetrician is even less likely to be cardiac aware. So you really need at that point to find someone who is. And there are two or two and a half cardio-obstetric clinics in Australia. But in other hospitals, there are obstetric physicians. Okay. And they're, they're a growing crew and I think they're brilliant. I, I, when I worked at the Royal Hospital for Women, Professor Sandra Lowe was there and she's still there and she is a fabulous resource and she's kind of that fantastic midpoint between obstetrician and cardiologist and mm. is invaluable and has really been part of setting up a number of kind of guidelines, I guess. But yes, you're right. If you're not already diagnosed, you're still facing that issue about getting diagnosed and not being dismissed as, well, of course you're tired, you're pregnant. Mm, yeah. You know, yes, yeah. you know, you've just put on 10 kilos. No wonder you're puffy. Yes, um, yeah. And as I said before, the cardiac symptoms and pregnancy symptoms can really overlap and we just have to try to avoid defaulting to, well, you're pregnant. I mean, and but, then, but what, what signs and symptoms, like if we're sitting there and we've got our patient on Zoom or across the table from us, what can we have on our radar that can really yeah. indicate that a cardiovascular disease may be developing? I would also add that postpartum women are even more lost. Okay. Because often they're now just going to their GP or their child and family health nurse. Mm. So they get even more lost in the picture. So the sorts of things are, what is new for her? Okay. And what doesn't make sense for her? And really trying to get her to increase her awareness of what is happening in her body. So early in pregnancy, you'll be a bit hypotensive. Then around I don't know, 26 weeks, you'll reach peak hypertension, but it's still not that bad. Mm. But you have... increase in your cardiac output. So that's a good time to start thinking what's happening for her. If she does have preclinical gestation or hypertension or or preeclampsia, they will often have an early rise in blood pressure, so like 10 weeks and they shouldn't be. So looking for things like that and at the same time thinking, well, is she just really panicked and nervous and, you know, your normal blood pressure assessments. And and this is a really simple one. Mm -hmm. To accurately take blood pressure... The person needs to be sitting still for a minimum of five minutes and not talking. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> and you have to do it three times. Okay. <laughs> I know. It was, I, um, and I'll confess, I found that out because I wasn't convinced my partner was having his blood pressure checked properly, so I contacted someone who researches hypertension. Okay, great <laughs> insight said, is there. This, is this the right way? And she said no, and you have to do it morning and night. Um, okay. So that's not always doable. But also symptoms like is she dizzy? And again, that's common, particularly in early pregnancy, but is it persisting? Does she have chest pain? Does she have shortness of breath? The, mm-hmm. So the cardiac changes in pregnancy as we said, create those, but is it excessive? And she might say, no, I'm not really short of breath. Then ask that next question. Say, well, have you changed what you're doing? Mm. And she said, oh, yeah, I can't go upstairs anymore. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so you are short of breath. It's just that you're not moving now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so she's moderated what she's done to reduce her symptoms, which is, yay, smart, but you need to unpack it a bit to find that. Because of actually, she is really short of breath. She's mm. just controlling it. You know, thinking about if she was really anemic beforehand. So yes. we ideally want someone not to be anemic, of course. Mm. But if you are anemic, you've got a heart that's working one and a half times as hard. And then you're adding an increased pressure because it's got to work harder again to get what little red blood cells and iron you have around the body. Mm. So they're kind of clues. Is she really pale? Is she sleeping excessively? Yes. Now, I I had a client on the weekend who in her pregnancy, lucky for her, she had an exceptionally good boss, she would get up, go to work, do two hours work, sleep for an hour. Wow. Okay. Eat, do an hour's work, sleep for an hour, go home, take her partner to soccer or something, some for sport, sleep in the car for an hour, okay. come home, have dinner and go to bed. It's like, hello. Mm. I mean, <laughs> like there's tired and there's tired. I know, but particularly, and I hear it all the time in clinic, when it's a woman's first pregnancy, they presume that that's normal. Yes. And this is the danger zone here. Yeah, exactly. And you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Yes. And we need to come back to increasing people's awareness and making them tune into what's happening in her body and making her feel okay about reporting it. Yeah, and I think there were some really good insights there. You were asking what is new for her, so new behavioural patterns and what doesn't make sense for her. And I love that tip on the, you know, the peak hypertension should be at around 26 weeks. So if we're seeing blood pressure increasing before that point, we need to prick up our ears and listen to it. And the dizziness, the shortness of breath, particularly before, I'd imagine that third trimester where, you know, women do get a bit short of breath, but they shouldn't be getting short of breath earlier in the pregnancy. And I love that little clinical pearl there. Have you changed what you're doing? Have you moderated what you're doing, even unconsciously, in order to, you know, not be short of breath? I mean, I think there's some great insights there. Yeah. And they're simple and they're kind of core listening to your patient stuff yes, and getting that full picture. And the other thing that we should have on our radar is going back to that family history again mm. and do your analysis for protein. Yes. Particularly if she says, oh, I think mum had high blood pressure. So oh, go and do a wee. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. We want to see if there's an issue. Yes. Um, I think there's a lot that we can do. I also think... You know, we're not treating her peripartum cardiomyopathy. No. But we're helping her get the right care and we're supporting her through that. 
Yes. And we're bringing to her awareness that we may need to ask more questions of other people here, you know, bringing in experts in that space where we can just facilitate and help and support her in doing that. But, you know, this is where possibly we could write a letter to her GP, raising our concerns. We may not express them to the patient themselves in case we create anxiety, but we could flag it with their care team, their GP, their obstetrician. So I think we still have a really good place to be listening to women and doing that. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of being really you know, have a standout dot point and really clear in that letter about her blood pressure today was or we have spoken about. So definitely it's not a you either act dramatically or do nothing. You've got Mm. lots of options. I agree. Um. I agree. Um, Now, in my research for this episode, several papers that I read noted that women have higher levels of high-sensitive CRP than men. But how does placental dysfunction and oxidative stress affect cardiovascular health in pregnancy? Because it, I can imagine there's a lot there. And there's a fair bit of kind of chicken and egg stuff going okay. on as well. So the high sensitive CRP is thought to be related to percentage body fat and women, or it would generally as a rule, have a higher body fat. Yes. Um, and interestingly, Studies for adults with high CRP and cardiovascular risk, Mm. if you reduce it, only women have reduced cardiovascular events. Men don't. makes no difference. Okay. So there's some other something that's happening with women. It's not just the amount of it, but it's the sensitivity to it. Mm. So the placenta is very delicate. (laughs) It's, It's an extraordinary organ and there's a massive amount of research going into it. I went to... PSANS in early May, so it's Australian New Zealand Perinatal Society conference and it's mm-hmm. the first one for years and there was hundreds and hundreds of presentations and posters and it blew me away how much of it was on the placenta. It was right. fascinating and yeah. great. So when you have placental dysfunction or insufficiency, you're mm-hmm. more likely to have placental abruption, the loss of the pregnancy or premature birth interuterine growth restriction because you've got poor blood flow through to the fetus Mm. and oxidative damage. So inflammation and oxidation, we know damages proteins, your DNA, lipids particularly, all that microvascular tissue. And the placenta is teensy tiny microvascular tissue. And the endothelium in all vessels but particularly in the placenta because it's so small and vulnerable, Mm. is highly susceptible to oxidative stress and inflammatory stress. So when you have that inflammation and oxidation, you're more likely to get damage and dysfunction of the placenta. When you have that, you're going to get preeclampsia. Okay. But if you have hypertension to begin with, then you're more likely to get oxidative stress than your placenta. That's why I say it's kind of a bit chicken and egg. It is. It is very chicken and the egg, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Which is probably... The only time that analogy is useful when you're talking about a placenta. <laughs> it's very <laughs> relative. About that until then. <laughs> so yeah, we really need to just reduce that inflammation and the oxidation. Yeah, I mean, as clinicians, there's so many things we can do in that space. You know, food really is medicine from that inflammatory side of things. So I know everyone will have some good ideas on that front. What are the long-term risks of cardiovascular disease in pregnancy? So what what happens long-term to these women? So, again, 
it's it's a bad answer, but we don't really know mm. because there haven't been a huge number of longitudinal studies. Okay. Um, but of the ones that we have, often they're about specific diseases. So what will happen after having a ischemic heart disease or a heart attack? And we don't have the full picture for all of them. And, you know, some of them are really uncommon. So there's a particular genetic type of cardiomyopathy that mm-hmm. there's about 10 women in Australia who have it. Mm. You know, it's harder to get really solid data on 10 women. Mm, of course. Um, you're not getting the big numbers. But, you know, we know from the Claire Arnott study that you mentioned earlier, so the 10-year risk of having some cardiovascular disease, some heart attack, TIA, something, for a woman who had high blood pressure in pregnancy Mm. was two and a half times higher than if she didn't have high blood pressure in Mm. pregnancy. And that's 10 years. So if she was 30, she's doing that at 40. Yes. (laughs) But that risk continues. It's not like she turns 50 and everything's hunky-dory. Then she goes through menopause and that's a whole other story. Mm, yes. Actually, yes. that is a whole other story. So so things like the arterial dissection and peripartum cardiomyopathy in particular, we know that both of those have some relationship with hormones. Right. So the SCAD is increased when you're breastfeeding mm-hmm. and increases when you stop breastfeeding, which is very unhelpful. Mm. Um, there's direct kind of hormonal links, but we're not, quite sure of the details. So understandably, women in those conditions are going, what the hell's going to happen when I go through menopause? Exactly. Yes. Um, So that's just kind of one group of diseases. And that was quite big. She had, I think, a couple hundred people in Australia on that. But there's a bigger one in the States that came out last year and they followed women for 20 years. Okay. And most of these women had lower level cardiac disease. So it wasn't the super high-risk heart failure. It was a milder heart failure and that sort of thing. Mm. But at 20 years, if the women who had cardiac disease in pregnancy, a third of them had either had a death from a cardiac condition, some type of arrhythmia, AF, that had a stroke, a heart attack, or they've had to have a stent inserted or hypertension or develop diabetes compared to 2% of women who didn't. That's so that astounding. was a really big yeah. jump yeah. and they're with women who didn't necessarily have really majorly bad cardiac disease. Part of that I think we'll be able to moderate because we know more about it now. Mm. So if that study came out last year, they probably collected the data four years before, which means the women had their cardiac issue 25 years ago and who knows how that was managed. Mm, true. So the outcomes in 20 years' time, Nat, if we repeated that study, should be much better. So that's from a cardiac point of view. And, you know, we know women who've had corrective surgery for congenital heart disease. There is some research to show by five years, you know, maybe a third of them will need to have further surgery. Um, But, again, it's all really variable. And age, whether they have more pregnancies, a whole bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. But that's the kind of cardiac stuff. Yeah. We know mental health is poor. Mm, okay. So my research, what well, didn't intentionally, but it was just kind of open book and included people up to 10 years after their pregnancy in the interviews, but in the online survey, which included the DAS, the depression, anxiety, stress scales, yeah. as well as one called the cardiac anxiety questionnaire and some quality of life surveys. 
that went up to 16 years after the event and mm-hmm. the issues were still there. And there's one other study that went to 10 years just on peripartum cardiomyopathy that was from Germany. And at 10 years, women still had mental health issues, even if their heart function was back to normal. Right. So the long-term impact can be so profound in these women. Yeah. And, you know, I really think a big part of that is the lack of support. Mm. For sure. Um, and lack of resources around that. So the other thing that included in my research was quality of life. And the quality of life is really subjective. Yeah. And it's, you know, age-related. So someone who's 80 might say they've got a quality of life, but when you're 20, <laughs> you, you don't want to live like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's reduced. So often they will have reduced career opportunities. They won't be able to run after their children. They can't go hiking, you know, whatever it is, they've had to change how they live their life. Yeah. A third of the women that I surveyed were really scared having sex would hurt their heart. Yeah, right. So it's really hard to have a wild, crazy sex life if you're thinking, this is fun, hope I don't die. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So then that impacts on the relationship, which has already been impacted by the fact that your partner may have seen you near death. Yeah. So lots of trauma for partners as well. And then, you know, you're feeling vulnerable and lacking confidence. Your body's done all this stuff that you weren't expecting because you're young and fit and healthy with no risk factors. So you don't trust your body. And your confidence as a mother takes a huge hit. Okay. And first-time mothers in particular, confidence usually isn't high. Mm. You've got so much self-doubt and so much rubbish on social media and contradictory and conflicting information. And Mm. a lot of these women are told they're not allowed to pick up anything heavier than two kilograms. Not helpful when you have a baby. (laughs) And a toddler. Mm. So the baby can deal with it, but the toddler can't. Mm. Because you've gone to preschool and everyone else is jumping into their mum's arms and you're just saying, no, walk along beside me. Yeah. So lots of grief in there as well. Financial impacts are really significant. Relationship. And and it's invisible. You know, you look fine. Mm. You know, you don't have a leg in a plaster cast. Yes. So people think, okay, you're fine now and don't really get that. You're still really struggling. So long term, that's the stuff that I really wanted to bring to people's awareness because these women need more support mm. and they just need someone to say, oh, you went through it too. Like Women would go on to a Facebook group if they found one in the middle of the night while they were having a panic attack Yeah, and they'd say, yeah, some of the information was different because they were in America or Spain or somewhere else. But I was just really excited because she had her event 10 years ago and she's alive so that just gave me hope. It's like, oh, my God, is yeah. that the best we can do for these women that they get reassurance by logging online in the middle of the night. Yeah, yes. We've got to be able to do better than that. And I think as health professionals, we can provide some of that. There's a whole other level of support you can only get from a peer. Yeah, that's true. I mean, what treatments can be helpful? What do you see clinically working well or helping support these women? So I think the first thing that I really want every woman to do is be really clear about who's in her team. Yeah, perfect. Like you need a team and we need to know that we are a player in a team. And depending on the woman, she might have a really big team. Mm. She might have a pretty mild team. And that's any woman who's like, that's just garden variety preconception. 
okay, let's talk about who you need to see. True. And if yes. if someone had a fabulous pregnancy, I still say, okay, now go and see a pelvic physio. Yes. You know, it's just just get used to referring. And it, sometimes you refer on because someone has uh, health conditions that you're just not that confident with. Yeah. And sometimes it's referring to but still keeping that patient as yours. So mm. it's, it's just adding to the mix. So I think that's a really important thing. And, you know, I, I'm really awful people being able to advocate for themselves and and demand is a strong word, but to ensure that they get the healthcare that they need and they need information to do that so we can provide some of that. But Mm. also we need to know that there's a whole heap of stuff that we don't know. Like we need to be upfront about that, about our role and our scope. Yeah. And, and you know, as natural therapists, nutritionists, integrative practitioners, we often take this approach of, okay, we really want to get to what's the core issue here? We don't just want to treat the symptom. We want to get to the basis of it and treat it. And we have to sometimes reframe that when we're looking at cardiac stuff yeah. in pregnancy, and particularly in postpartum, because there is no core for some of it. Mm. Or or if it is, it's a genetic thing and, you know, good luck trying to change that. Yeah. So being okay with, okay, well, what can we do here? And we can do what we do really well. Mm, of course. So we yes. can listen to the woman. We can provide her really good, awesome life support, so nutrition, stress management, all of the supplementation that you, you want for the oxidation. Yes. You know, if you can get someone with a half-decent ferritin before she gets pregnant, yay. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I think that's just such a, you know, that's my goal half the time, you know, whatever happens, just just have some iron or meat or something, you know. Yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, preconception, our normal excellent preconception care. We want to make sure her blood sugar is great. We want to make sure her thyroid's okay. Yes. You know, if she's got a vaguely simmering underactive thyroid, that's going to increase her blood pressure and increase cardiac pressure. Mm, mm. So just tidying everything up. Yeah, I love that's a great expression (laughs) just to help support tidy everything up. And as practitioners, that is what we do, holistic, functional type of approach. I mean, I think that 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 sort of says it all. Yeah, and I think that is our strength. And, you know, sometimes people get frustrated that the cardiologist didn't prescribe a diet or a nutrient. Is that well that's because they're a cardiologist. (laughs) Exactly. That's not (laughs) that's not their scope. That's our job. You know, and likewise we're not going to do a cardio version. You know? (laughs) So (laughs) so it's around working to our strengths and acknowledging and celebrating that, not thinking it's bad that everyone doesn't do the same as we do. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Look, thank you so much for joining us today. There's a few key points that I've taken. Well, there's a lot, but a few that come to mind uh, from an importance perspective is that cardiovascular disease in pregnancy, it's a little bit like the canary in the goldmine and don't take it lightly that pregnancy magnifies underlying health risks and it provides an opportunity for diet and lifestyle interventions that may help reduce long-term risks. And that we're actually more likely to see more women than we realise in clinical practice with potential cardiac disease. So keep those eyes open. And also, 
as clinicians, we can support these women by doing simple things like running a DAS, by checking her blood pressure, as you said, by taking it properly, sitting down five minutes, not talking, and taking it three times, not just once. I mean, there's so many things that we can offer these women and helping them work in that care team environment. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned around the oxidative stress and C-reactive protein, all of our anti-inflammatory, antioxidative strategies. Mm. Yes. Garlic has been shown to reduce preeclampsia. You know, prebiotics, probiotics, make sure you've got selenium and zinc and fish oil and vitamin C and vitamin E and all of those things and hopefully through diet so you don't just super load it. Yeah. Um, But yeah, there's definitely a lot we can do and a lot with the mental health, as you say. Mm, Exactly. Once again, Jane, thank you so much. Everyone, it's been an amazing episode. Thanks for listening today. Don't forget, you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website, fxmedicine.com.au. I'm Emma Sutherland and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to FX Medicine, and share us with your family, friends, and colleagues. 